Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Don Carson to the podcast. Dr. Carson serves as research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he's been teaching since 1978. He has a global preaching and teaching ministry and has authored or edited more than 60 books. Dr. Carson also is a founding member of the Gospel Coalition and currently serves as its president. Dr. Carson, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. It's my privilege to be with you. It's a delight to have this conversation today, and one that I trust will be uh, enriching and encouraging to those pastors and preachers and ministers listening into this podcast. Uh, you currently are delivering lectures on the campus of Midwestern Seminary with us, the Sizemore Lectures, and so now we are taking a break from those and recording a couple of podcasts. And I want to first converse with you about exegetical fallacies and in particular, the necessity of avoiding exegetical fallacies. Now, last night at dinner, we were conversing about the book, and I asked you a question. I want to get on the record now. Where did the idea for the book come from? It came out of two sources, really. One, I had recently read a book by David Fisher called Historian's Fallacies. It had been recommended to me by a colleague at Trinity, uh, John Woodbridge, and um, uh, it, it dawned on me as soon as I heard the title and read a good chunk of the book, that something similar could be done in the area of, of exegetical fallacies. In those days, I was teaching Greek, just of, as just about every New Testament scholar does at a place like Trinity. And um, pretty soon, you start collecting your own list of pretty abysmal examples. And so once I had it in my head that I would try to write a little book on, on uh, exegetical fallacies, I started finding them everywhere, uh, not only from class notes and... Uh, and bad sermons that I had heard and, and so on. I just recorded everything. And, um, and then eventually I was invited to give a, a series of lectures at another seminary, and I thought, well, this is a good opportunity. So I wrote the chapters of that book and gradually polished it, and that's, that's the way the book grew. It's funny, today after chapel, I was visiting with a, a guest who's an elder gentleman pastoring, and he said to me, he said, I still remember when I read Dr. Carson's book, Exegetical Fallacies. He said, it, it absolutely destroyed me. And he said it with a smile. And I remember reading that book in seminary during my MDev studies, and uh, like so many other seminarians, it, it challenged me. And I wouldn't say it destroyed me, but it certainly challenged me because you realize how common exegetical fallacies are, even uh, to the very best preachers. Now, to preach is to be an exegete. To preach faithfully, at least, is to be an exegete. To preach expositionally is to engage in exegetical work. And so none of us, no preacher, no self-respecting preacher, wants to commit an exegetical fallacy. Now, in your book, you outline four main categories or groupings of fallacy. So here's what I want to do in this conversation. I want to just move through each one of these four categories, and perhaps you can summarize a concern, give an example or two of, uh, of a practice of that fallacy, and then at the end of the conversation, pull the conversation together and uh, look to you to give us some words of counsel as how we can avoid exegetical fallacies. So exegetical fallacies, fallacy number one that is often committed. Word studies. That's a very big category. Um, I'd recommend more broadly a book by Moises Silva called Biblical Words and Their Meanings. There are quite a lot of different kinds of fallacies along these lines. Uh, sometimes one finds, for example, um, that a word in a particular context means such and such, and then we assume that it always has exactly the same meaning everywhere else. And that is 
something to be proved, not something to be assumed. Words are shaped rather differently by their different contexts. And if you assume that each word has a technical meaning that it never escapes, then then you will start paying too little attention to the particular context in which a word uh, occurs. Another common uh, error is um, the assumption that uh, a word always carries all of the lexical meanings you find in a lexicon. So, so you look up a, a word, uh, anthropos, man, and then you read all of the d- different, quote, meanings. They're really English glosses. They're really English attempts at getting across the meaning of something that you find in Bauerant and Gingrich Danker, the great Greek lexicon. And, and then every time you find the word, you try and put all of those lexical meanings into the particular word. But that doesn't really work at all. Um, the Amplified New Testament uh, 40 or 50 years ago tried to do exactly that. Uh, so that every time a word occurred, then they would put in parentheses all the other meanings of the word so that, so that it was trying to give the impression this is giving you the fuller, richer sense. But that's not how English works. It's not how Greek works. It's not how any language works. Uh, words are shaped in part by the context in which they occur. And uh, you, you, you cannot read every conceivable usage into one specific usage without making some really ghastly mistakes. Uh, Another word um, uh, error that is pretty common, um, although God by his Holy Spirit inspires all of the books of the Bible, yet the fact of the matter, he has done so through different personalities with different vocabularies, different styles, different literary forms, and so on. And and so a word that is used one way by one author may be used slightly differently by another author. Uh, what you have to pay attention to, the technical word, is idiolect, that is, one's own tongue. So that in Paul, for example, the word call is regularly connected with salvation. And if you're called, you are saved. So as many as have been called have also been justified and and sanctified and so on, the great golden chain of Romans uh, chapter 8. But in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, call means something like invitation. Mm. Uh, So, for example, many are called, but few are chosen. And you you have to pay attention to those differences that are established by context. Context is uh, astonishingly important to get the exact shading of the meaning of any particular word. And you also reference in that chapter, as I recall, a particular fallacy of importing English meaning back onto the text. And you talk about you know, the infamous uh, Romans one sixteen that every preacher has committed, uh, the explosive power of God yes. in the gospel. Yes. The, the word for power in Greek is dunamis, from which we get dynamite. And, and so then people read dynamite back into the first century. It's the dynamite of God as if they're saying something profound, when, of course, dynamite hadn't been invented in the first right. century. Um, so so that's, that's a double error. It's, a, it's, it's, it's very anachronistic since it's reading English uh, meanings back into Greek in order to give some alleged insight into Greek. And it's just not the way any Greek would have thought. Moreover, when you stop to think about it, it's... It's a pretty destructive image in any case. The, right, the gospel right. is talking about putting things together into soteria, salvation, wholeness, transformation. And we're talking about blowing it up. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not a wise way of trying to get across right. the power of the gospel. Not in the least. There's a second fallacy you point to in the book, a second category of fallacy. These are grammatical fallacies. And to understand them demands a little more understanding of Greek or Hebrew, as the case may be. Um, For example, many people have taken the aorist tense in Greek, there's nothing quite like it in English, Mm. to mean it has to be something that's once for all. 
but a quick survey of the uses of the aorist tense in uh, the Greek language shows that quite regularly it's not referring to uh, a once-for-all thing. It's, it's looking at the thing as a whole, uh, the author choosing to portray it that way, uh, but to say that because it's Eris, therefore it has to be a once-for-all thing, it, it just doesn't work in too many places. For example, in John chapter 2, for 46 years this temple has been being rebuilt, we would say in English. It's an aorist tense mm. for 42 years and still going on when Jesus is doing it. And th- th- there's no way you can get a once for all out of, out of that sort of context. And so uh, sometimes people get these slogans about what Greek tenses mean or what a Greek construction means, and a little more knowledge of Greek saves you from making mistakes. I'm curious, especially as it relates to the aorist tense, um, how did that error kind of slip into mainstream um, understanding of the Greek language? Oh, I, I think it happens often by um, teachers who give um, a kind of simplified definition of something, uh, and, and the simplified definition is itself memorable, and, and then the memorized form, because it's memorable, becomes part of tradition and gets passed on to other generations, and, and then it becomes sort of gospel all, all by itself. Uh, whereas the best antidote is having more people who read enough Greek that they can see that it doesn't work. And the, the, the simplification for the sake of uh, easy pedagogy uh, eventually becomes mm-hmm. the next generation's rule. And uh, I think that's probably where most of these errors come from. So we're talking about exegetical fallacies, conversation with Dr. Don Carson. And uh, we've looked at word study fallacies. Uh, we now are moving to the third fallacy, the third categories of fallacy. Well, this is a, a wide range of fallacies where, where, where people have simply made false connections. And I start that chapter with an old poem I read when I was a boy. Why are fire engines red? They have four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight is twelve. Twelve inches make a ruler. A ruler is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sails the seven seas. The seven seas have fish. The fish have fins. The fins hate the Russians. The Russians are red. Fire engines are always Russian, so they're red. Now, there's there's a logical or a linguistic fallacy in every single line there, sometimes two or three of them at once. And it's, it's, it's amusing enough that we can stop back and just laugh at it and have a little giggle. But it's worth actually taking a student through that and saying, analyze what mistake was being made at each point. And then showing the same sort of mistakes are made sometimes by the leaps we uh, we make. We, we draw inadequate analogies or um, uh, we make unwarranted associative leaps um, because this was said here and that was said there and they sound roughly similar, therefore the same thing is being said, whereas the context might be entirely different. And it's easy to find lots and lots of examples of that sort. So that's, that's the attempt of that chapter, to, to sort out logical fallacies so we don't make them. And there's a fourth category of, category of fallacies. I call that presuppositional and historical fallacies. Um, after all, a lot of the Bible is making historical claims. Here's where I'm overlapping a bit with David Fisher's book, Historian's Fallacies, Um, because because the Bible makes a lot of claims about what takes place in space-time history. And so to understand how we have access to history through witnesses, um, through testimony, through written documents, through attestation, becomes an important part of how we have access to the fact that God disclosed himself in history. Hmm. The Bible is not simply an abstract philosophical book that God has dictated. 
And, and so uh, this is an attempt to work through the kinds of ways parts of the Bible uh, rely on historical witness and historical testimony and this sort of thing, and the mistakes that go along with people who fail to recognize those kinds of elements in, in the Bible and, and jump to conclusions that are woefully inadequate. Now, does a particular example come to mind of this fallacy? Um, well, there are some that w- were connected in the early part of that chapter with uh, what is nowadays called the new hermeneutic. Hmm. Um, that, that's a more recent fallacy that, that uh, has developed over the last 50 or 60 years, but it doesn't go back, for example, to the time of Calvin or Spurgeon or, or something like that. That's the view that at the end of the day, any historical claim whatsoever is really more a reflection of the person who is making the claim than of the historical fact itself. So in that case, you have a whole lot of fallacies that are bound up with contemporary presuppositions about how meaning is formed in the human mind. Um, For example, um, a few years ago in Australia, the then uh, archbishop of all of Australia in the their equivalent of the Episcopal Church, the the primate, as he's called. He was extremely left-wing in his views, and around Easter Sunday, he was asked this question on national radio. Um, Suppose people found the tomb of Jesus, and by whatever means, it really was the tomb of Jesus. You you could prove it somehow. And lo and behold, the body was there, and it turned out to be a 2,000-year-old body, and the evidence was overwhelmingly strong, that this really was the body of Jesus, what would that do for your faith? And the chap replied, well, it wouldn't do anything to my faith because I believe that Christ is risen in my heart. But that is so far removed from the logic, the historical logic of the Apostle Paul Hmm. in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, "If, if Christ has not risen, then there's some things that follow irrefutably from it. First of all, the witnesses that saw that he was risen, that touched him and ate with him and saw that the tomb was empty. They're all liars or frauds or something. And not only so, but your faith is in vain. And, and uh, you're believing something that is not true. The Bible never asks you to believe something that is not true, or it never asks you to believe something that may not be true. Uh, the, the Bible articulates the truth and strengthens your faith by articulating the truth, not by articulating things that are not true or merely subjective and so on. So that whole realm of the new hermeneutics, so far as history is concerned, is really controlled by a batch of presuppositions about how people form meaning in their minds. And, and we can buy into that kind of thing if we're not careful ourselves and, and, and thus uh, depreciate the significance of the Bible's truth claims about historical events in which God has disclosed himself. So we're talking about exegetical fallacies with Dr. Don Carson, and uh, he has helpfully outlined these four main categories uh, that really form the backbone of his book, Exegetical Fallacies. Now, I don't want to leave the conversation with just what preachers often do wrong. We want this to be a helpful and uh, encouraging time to faithfulness in the pulpit. And to be faithful in the pulpit, we have to be faithful with the Word and faithful in the text. So I want to shift gears in this conversation. And Dr. Carson, Outline for us briefly some principles of faithful interpretation, of faithful exegesis, so we might guard ourselves from committing these very exegetical fallacies that you've referenced. Yes, let me, let me say something about uh, the fear that some people have had in reading this book. Um, people have said, you know, this book has destroyed a lot of my sermons, and it, it discouraged me, and, and, and so on, so on, so on. And all I can say by way of response is uh, the alternative— 
to being discouraged because of this book is to continue committing the same errors that you've been making. Right. In, in other words, the book is designed to, to, to uh, show up flaws. And if the flaws that are being exposed are clearly things that we should be avoiding, then it may discourage you. The long-term improvement in your sermons is worth the discouragement. Mm. If the only alternative is to keep making the mistakes, which, which do you want to do? Uh, be encouraged but keep making mistakes or face a bit of discouragement for a while and learn a better way. So in every case, it's often a, a question of, of learning to be more careful, uh, to understand that uh, words, for example, um, uh, find the precise shade of meaning in a particular context by reading the context carefully. And, and, and to find some good examples of people who do careful word studies is a good thing. That's why I recommended right at the beginning of this uh, broadcast the book by Moises Silva, Biblical Words and Their Meaning. It's a very helpful uh, book. Um, uh, I recall one example. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful in Greek is hilaron. And so he gives an example of a back translation from the English gloss. The Lord loves a hilarious giver. And, of course, that doesn't make any sense at all. But after you've been exposed to these sorts of things a few times, hilarious and dynamite and, and so on, then you avoid making those backward references. In other words, you, mm. you learn from the mistakes to be more careful. And so there are books around that show you how to use words a little, a little better. And a good exegesis course will start exposing you to more books that teach you a little bit more about context and, and so on. And likewise, with respect to uh, grammatical fallacies, uh, if you have only one year of Greek, you'll probably continue to make a lot of these mistakes. You get two or three years of Greek under your belt, and the, those mistakes will disappear. You'll, you'll, you'll be a lot more careful. So in the words of Alexander Pope, um, a little learning is a dangerous thing. And often what is needed is a little more learning uh, so that hmm. uh, you cure yourselves of these uh, sorts of mistakes that are easily classifiable, fairly easily, in most cases, avoided once you understand things a little better. So be careful, uh, be studious. I I'm baiting you to answer this next question because I know it will be from your lips quickly, if not, uh, if not immediately, uh, context. I've heard you say on so many different occasions, emphasizing context, context, context. Amplify that for a moment. Well, what I picked up when I was a boy was a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. And... Um, so, so that's pretty often in theological debate, um, uh, we, we quote something that uh, sounds as if it has a bearing on our subject, but, but really doesn't at all when you look at its context more closely. My first self-conscious awareness of this, I was in maybe grade two or three, uh, so I was maybe seven or eight, something like that. And uh, I lived in a part of the country in Canada where there was a lot of disputation between Protestants and Catholics. And there was a little girl in the class who said, well, Catholics are right because we had the first pope, the Apostle Peter. And, and, and since we had the first one, we're the oldest and so we're the best. And I said with all of my uh, exegetical ingenuity, well, before the Apostle Peter got anywhere, um, there was John the Baptist. So the Baptist came first. 
Um, now, of course, anybody who knows anything about history knows that John the Baptist is pre-Christian. He's a forerunner to Christ. Right. He's not the first Christian. None of those debates make any sense. But I remember, as a, even though I was only eight or nine at the time, thinking, I've won this argument. I've shut this girl up. Uh, but at the same time, it's got to be a bad argument. I, even then, I knew enough about the New <laughs> Testament. You know? and, uh, um, but it didn't stop me from making it at the time because I wanted to win the argument. Um, well, there are far more sophisticated ways of making the same sort of mistake today, of course, where we quote texts without reference to their context. And when you pay a little more attention to how a, a word or an expression or an argument is being used in a particular book or corpus, uh, then we can clean up an awful lot of our own sad mistakes. So be careful, continue to study, and pay attention to context. Dr. Carson, it's been a delight to review a book you wrote several decades ago now. I was introduced to it during my MDiv studies at Southern Seminary, and I remember reading page by page and being challenged page by page, and it's a delight to reconsider it today and uh, reconsider these common fallacies and to visit with you about how preachers can avoid these fallacies. Thank you so much for the conversation. My privilege. Thank you for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, please visit my website, jasonkallen.com.